from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. My name is Alyssa Carroll, and I am the host and the creator of at serial underscore killing on Instagram, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. And of course, a special thanks to my patrons, Freddie, Linda, Janice, Hammer, Katarina, Robert, Florence, Teresa, Sarah, Sophie, Nanette, two Emmas, Gabrielle, Emily, Gaylin, Cassandra, Bree, David, Judy, and John. Thank you so much. You are appreciated. Now, this podcast is going to be on the Atlanta Ripper. Now, the identity of the serial killer is still unknown, so we don't really have a childhood to go through. Now, I want to preface this podcast by saying that due to the age of the case, the beautiful people of color were referred to by descriptive words that I personally find offensive and I'm not going to say. So I've replaced these words with just black. Now let's get into the story. The murders were believed to have started in 1909, so let's get into some history for that time. Columbia officially recognized Panama's independence. British explorers David, Mawson, and McKay reached the South Magnetic Pole as part of the Nimrod expedition. First federal legislation prohibiting narcotics, such as opium, was signed into law. The National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or NAACP, was formed this year. The first subway car with side doors went into service in New York City. First National Woman's Day was observed in the United States this year, organized to honor the 1908 garment workers' strike in New York where women protested against working conditions. First U.S. University School of Nursing was established at the University of Minnesota. New York's Queensboro Bridge opened, linking Manhattan to Queens. William Howard Taft was inaugurated as 27th U.S. President. British Parliament, being alarmed over increasing German naval strength, passed a new naval appropriations bill. Germany sent Russia diplomatic notes requesting the recognition of the Austrian annexation of Bosnia and the cessation of support to Serbia in the controversy. In a diplomatic note to Austria, Serbia recognized the Bosnian annexation and promised to maintain friendly relations with Austria. The North Pole was reached by Americans Robert Peary and Matthew Henson. Also in 1909, the establishment of Tel Aviv by Jewish settlers occurred. Construction began on the first 100 houses in Tel Aviv this year. Alfred Deakin became Prime Minister of Australia for the third time. 
And finally, the Victoria and Albert Museum opened in London. So this was just a bit of the atmosphere when the killer began his murder spree. For this story, the history of Atlanta is incredibly important and dates back to 1836 when Georgia decided to build a railroad to the Midwest. A location was chosen to be the line's terminus, and the stake marking the official spot of terminus was driven into the ground in 1837, called the Zero Mile Post. Between 1845 and 1854, rail lines were built from four different directions, and the now rapidly growing town of Atlanta quickly became the trail rain hub for the entire southern United States. During the American Civil War, Atlanta was a distribution hub and became the target of a major Union campaign. In 1864, Union William Sherman's troops set a great deal of Atlanta on fire and destroyed the city's assets and buildings, other than churches and hospitals. The important thing to take away from this is that Atlanta was a very major and important city during the Civil War. But once the war was over, the city's elite black colleges were founded between 1865 and 1885. And despite disenfranchisement and the later imposition of Jim Crow laws in the 1910s, a prosperous black middle class and upper class did emerge. During this time, an article written by John Michael Matthews titled, quote, The Georgia Race Strike of 1909 was written. It said, quote, on May 17, 1909, 80 white firemen, members of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Firemen and Engineermen, went on strike against the Georgia Railroad. They charged that the railroad was replacing white firemen with black at lower pay and was granting black workers seniority over white. The strike quickly inflamed public opinion and mobs attacking trains and beating strike bearers soon halted railroad operations completely. By the time the strike ended, the strikers, trying to draw a new kind of color line, were demanding that all black firemen on the railroad be eliminated. A heated public issue in Georgia, the strike attracted national attention, clouded the final days of the administration of progressive Governor Hoke Smith, and ended in federally supervised arbitration instigated by President William Howard Taft. The Georgia race strike, as it came to be known, was the first involving such issues ever called in the South. One Georgian spoke for many when he described it as the most notable labor upheaval in some of its effects and accomplishments that this section has yet experienced. The outcome of the strike, a setback for the Union, was one of evil portent for race relations in the South, end quote. And so this little bit of background information sets the scene for our Atlanta Ripper during a time when black people were finally beginning to be able to build a true life for themselves. 22 years after London's Jack the Ripper gained notoriety, we see what is believed to be the first victim of the Atlanta Ripper written about in the Atlanta Georgian newspaper on February 22, 1909. 
The article states that two young boys were playing together when they saw some shoes protruding out of the ground. Curious, they went over and pulled on the shoes, only to realize they were still attached to human feet. The authorities were alerted, and as the body was uncovered, they saw that they were the remains of a black woman, presumed to be roughly 20 years old. After examination, it was determined that she had died from blunt force trauma to the head elsewhere, taken to the dump site, and mostly buried, leaving the feet and shoes exposed. An investigation into her murder was opened. She was later identified as Marie Gilliard. There was another article written about a similar murder in the Atlanta Georgian a few days later that could be a separate murder victim found, though the details are pretty similar, so it also could have been the same victim as the first. The article states that three boys were playing around a trash pile when they discovered a shoe protruding out of the trash. One boy stated it looked like a brand new shoe and went to get it, but then discovered that it was still attached to the body of a 15-year-old black girl who had a deep wound to her cheek and strangulation marks around her neck. As crime scenes often do, a crowd formed around the police as they examined the area. No one knew who the girl was or could identify her, leaving investigators to believe she too, if it wasn't the first girl, had been killed somewhere else and brought to this site, buried in the trash. But then four days later, she was identified as Della Reed. Two black men were arrested for her murder and everyone sighed in relief until the next victim was discovered a month later in March. This woman's remains were very badly decomposed and discovered just a few feet from where one of the first two victims had been found. Part of her jaw was missing and they believed her to have been shot and killed. Her clothing, or the style of clothing at least, indicated that she was from a more middle-class background. At this point, the murder was officially dubbed the, quote, Black Jack the Ripper in the newspapers. The murderer was described as a tall, slender black man by witnesses who believed they got a visual of the man in passing before he struck. Now, this is actually quite typical of serial killers. Most all stay within their own ethnic groups, with very few exceptions. In September 1909, a still unidentified black woman was found in Peach Tree Creek. She was lying face down in the water, not far from a bridge. The authorities didn't know if she had perhaps jumped from the bridge purposefully or if she had been murdered and dumped in the creek. And then things went quiet for about six months until another woman of color was discovered murdered. In March of 1910, Estella Baldwin was found. Her cause of death was listed as a concussion to the brain, indicating blunt force trauma. There really wasn't much more information on her, unfortunately. Then one month later, another woman, Georgia Brown, died from a gunshot wound. The next day, Maddie Smith was also murdered by a gunshot. In May of 1910, Lavina Austin was found murdered by a gunshot, and in the same month, Sarah Dukes and Frances Lampkin both died from gunshot wounds. Two more women would be murdered in this fashion before 1910 came to an end. 
These women were not directly connected to the Atlanta Ripper, but it is important to note them as potential Ripper victims as their circumstances and social standing were quite similar to the previous victims. So black women all over Atlanta were completely terrified, and rightly so, to be out and about by themselves, but most of the time it really couldn't be helped. Most all had jobs that they had to go to, which forced them to walk alone at all hours of the day and sometimes in secluded areas of the city, which really is not much different than how most women feel to this day, might I add. In January 1911, the Atlanta Georgian newspaper reported, quote, With the left side of her skull crushed by a blow from a blunt instrument and her throat and jaw slashed with knife wounds, Rosa Treese, a black woman, was found dead 75 yards from her house in Gardner, Sunday. An inquest held Sunday afternoon found that death was due to violence and the circumstances indicated foul play, but no evidence as to her assailant was given. John Treese, the woman's husband, was arrested at his house an hour or two after the body was found, but neither the police nor the county officials could produce any evidence through which he could be held and he was released. The police are still working on the case. End quote. Rosa had been found on the Southern Railway tracks. Her stepson, who was the last person to have seen her, was arrested but later let go as there was, again, zero evidence that he had anything to do with her murder. The next month, another young woman, Belle Walker, would lose her life in the exact same way after it was discovered she had not made it home from work that morning. Yet another murder in June a young lady by the name of Addie Watts. Addie's head had been smashed in supposedly with a railroad coupling pin and her throat had been cut. They determined she had been drugged a short distance to some railroad tracks, possibly to allow a train to finish mutilating her remains. Another black man was arrested predictably on suspicion of her murder and was later released. A week later, Lizzie Watkins' body was discovered in a bushy area on the corner of two streets. It appeared that she had first been knocked out with possibly a brick, then a railroad coupling pin was used to inflict serious and fatal head trauma. Her throat had also been slashed. Two men were arrested, but later released. At this point, for several weeks, every Saturday night was marked by one to two killings, the victims being women of color and the police were nowhere nearer having an idea as to who their serial killer was. At this point, a group of local pastors got together and included the names of the slain women to present to the mayor and the governor of Georgia by means of petition to plead with them to help stop the violent deaths of the women and use any means necessary to catch the killer. According to the book, The Atlanta Ripper, the unsolved case of the Gate City's most infamous murders by Jeffrey Wells, quote, the petition also boldly stated that those forwarding said request had no knowledge of any convictions for these murders. From that, it is obvious that by the time of the petition, all of these deaths were considered murders and that the petitioners more or less, felt that they were the work of the man who was later tagged the Atlanta Ripper, end quote. 
And then another body was found. Sadie Holly was found by a man out in a field. Her head had been bashed in and her throat cut. The now obvious signature of our Atlanta Ripper. Another man who was a day laborer was arrested after witnesses came forward stating that they had seen him with her. When he was arrested, he had dirt and blood on his pants, as well as scratches on one of his arms. However, he was released after it became apparent that the murders continued predictably while he was in custody. In early June 1911, there was a change of events. From Reddit user Beard Chaser, quote, 20-year-old Emma Lou Sharp was eagerly awaiting her mother to return from a run to the local store. She was nervous for her mother, as everyone was well aware of the murderer and his intended targets. After being gone for an hour, much longer than what was needed for Lena to return, Emma went out searching for her. As she was looking, she happened upon a man that she described as tall, black, broad-shouldered, wearing a wide-brimmed black hat. He asked her how she was feeling and she told him she was fine and immediately began to walk away. He stepped in front of her and told her there was no reason to be afraid that, quote, I never hurt girls like you, end quote. The man then violently stabbed her in the back. Emma was able to get away and she ran, screaming while the man laughed and ran down a nearby alley. Now, people hearing her screams came running to see what was wrong, and they formed a search party to look for the man. Unfortunately, this turned up the body of her mother, Lena, along the seaboard railroad tracks. Her fatal injuries matched that of so many other victims. Later, Emma partially identified a man named Todd Henderson. He was a good person of interest because he had been seen with a previous victim in a drugstore the same night that she was murdered. His shoe also matched a shoe print that was found near the body of another victim. Police brought him in for questioning where they asked him if he owned a knife. He denied that he did, though it was soon discovered that he did in fact have a knife and he had dropped it off at a barber shop to be sharpened the morning after a recent murder. But a judge determined the evidence to be circumstantial and he was released. Not long after, 22-year-old Mary Yettle left her job as a household cook to go home. A whistle caught her attention, and as she turned to see where it came from, she saw what she described as an incredibly tall African-American male running at her from an alley. She screamed and ran back into the house that she worked at. The man of the house promptly ran out with his gun and found a man apparently hiding in the shadows. He was confronted, but he ran off down the alleyway. The police were alerted, but unfortunately no evidence was found. So, by now, the black and white communities, no matter the current racial climate, began working together to try to find the murderer. Now, as I stated, there were arrests, but none panned out. There were also several confessions that were proven to be false, and yet the murders continued. November 1911, a partially buried body was discovered in a ditch in the early morning hours. 
The skull had been crushed, her throat had been slashed, and she had also been disemboweled. Her heart had been removed and had been mutilated. It was said that the police brought in bloodhounds who who definitely caught on to a scent and followed it 200 yards or so to a rail car line and then it was gone. Another woman was found with severe head trauma, but she was still alive. She was able to tell police that she didn't see him. He had run up behind her and bludgeoned her in the head. Unfortunately, she died before she could give them any more details. The next woman found was Zila Favors. Her body was apparently discovered on her own front porch, showing signs of severe head trauma and multiple slice wounds to her body. After interviewing neighbors, it was discovered that Zila had been speaking to a man near her home that night. Someone told the police they heard the man tell her, quote, Jack the Ripper ain't dead yet, end quote, and there was a blood trail up to her porch where her body had been found. So then the police advertised needing help with the investigation, asking that black men come assist them in hunting down the serial killer. Several rewards were also posted for his capture, and yet there were no leads. Now, apparently a known pedophile named Henry Williams was arrested for the sexual assault and robbery of three girls, and they began an investigation into whether or not he might be the Atlanta Ripper. They brought the man to Emma, the one surviving victim, who stated that he was not the Ripper. The newspapers began advertising that the Ripper attacked on Saturday nights and that everyone should take caution, and they were correct. By February 1912, the Atlanta Journal published an article indicating that the Ripper had claimed 22 women's lives at this point, and that's not including the ones beginning in 1909. One month later, another article was published stating two more murders happened, one woman while she was walking to work one early morning. After this, the Ripper stopped his kind of predictable hunting routine on Saturday nights. More and more women lost their lives this year, and the murders continued into 1913 when a woman named Martha was murdered. Her body was found early the next morning. She had apparently been living in an alley for about a month because she had left her husband. She had been murdered and drugged to a new location as evidenced by the trail of blood 50 feet or so long. She had had her throat slit, a particularly grievous wound to her jugular vein. But again, there simply wasn't enough evidence or information to make an arrest. And then after this, well, the murder seemed to slow down. One of the local papers published an article stating, quote, When in a community of this size, this many women can be murdered within two years, manifestly there are some things out of joint. In this crisis, he cannot lay claim to vision who does not see the hand of God pointing to the sins and duties of this community, end quote. A local reverend preached to his congregation at the Black First Congregational Church that the hand of God was seen in the work of the Ripper and the victims, who were sinners, were to blame for their own deaths. Another local church was able to collect and post a $1,200 reward for the capture of the Ripper. 
Now guys, this would be a whopping $34,000 today. Still others stated that it was jealous women murdering each other rather than a man, though the police and detectives all knew that this was false. In February 1913, a roughly 20-year-old girl was discovered having suffered knife slashes to her face, her throat cut, and she displayed horrible bruising around her head and chest. The investigators determined that the murderer had stabbed into her head so severely that it broke his knife, all while holding her in a, quote, vice-like grip. There were also many footprints around the body, as well as a small rubber-tired buggy marks indicating they believed him to have returned to the scene to make sure she was, in fact, dead. She, like a few others, had been of mixed ethnicity. In March 1914, so five years after the first believed murder, several notes were found on fireboxes around Atlanta. The notes threatened that he would continue to murder younger women of color who were out at night, and they were all signed Jack the Ripper. It isn't known if the actual murderer wrote them or if this was a prank. There were still some who believed these attacks were committed by several assailants, possibly copycat killers, but most agreed that this was the work of one single serial killer, though the term had not been coined yet back then. And then things went presumably quiet for about three years until June 1917, when two boys who were out hunting for blackberries found a partially buried female body. And like so many others, her head had been bashed in. Another body was discovered a few months later in a mud puddle with identical head trauma and multiple slash wounds. Another in November. The murders continued through 1918, though much fewer until they finally stopped in 1924. So, guys, for 14 years, the Ripper killed as often and as he wished. Not every single murder is thought to be connected to the Ripper, but all could very well have been at his hands. Again, there were a few suspects, but none that could be determined as the Ripper, and the case remains unsolved today. Some say that perhaps he was the Jack the Ripper, but this is highly unlikely. It's not impossible that a black Jack the Ripper attacked in London, but highly, highly unlikely. Again, serial killers most often stay within their own ethnic groups. Some believe it was the work of more than one man, and that very well could be so. So tell me, guys, what do you think? Was there one Atlanta Ripper? Was it perhaps the work of several men? Was it jealousy between women of that community? I highly doubt it. But leave me a comment below in the video if you're watching, or you can always DM me on Instagram at Serial underscore Killing. You can email me at SerialKillingInstagram at gmail.com. And as always, thank you so much for listening because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I really appreciate that. Thank you and have a good day.